Good morning, crew. Glad y'all are here, man. I, um, I love inclement weather. I don't know what it is about uh, maybe growing up in Louisiana and duck hunting. This is a, somebody said something about the weather today. I thought, this is a great duck hunting day. I mean, this is a day when you get out and you see things you wouldn't see otherwise, and there are very few people that are out. The thing that I enjoy about a day like this, when we get together as saints this morning, is uh, um, it's, it's a day where you might be tempted to stay in. And uh, I'm just thankful that you guys have ventured out. For those who are not able to join us online, uh, just know that you're missed. Uh, there are various reasons why folks aren't here this morning, and weather is the least of those problems. So we've got, uh, obviously, some crazy stuff going on with the coronavirus and things like that. So we can pray for our people that are uh, quarantined, or people that are sick, and people that are recovering, and people that are staying uh, in as they should, likely, during this season. So uh, we'll pray for our time that we spend together as well. We're going to pray for another church in our community. We're praying for Roy Youngblood and uh, First Baptist Church Greenville. Uh, we're also going to pray for a people group. Uh, this morning we're going to pray for the Kunbi Maratha of India, 7.6 million strong, 0.0% of which are Christian. Not, not a single known Christian among this 7.6 million people group. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for these few minutes that we have together. I'm thankful for um, your provision of a space, a time, uh, an occasion for us to gather on the Lord's Day. Lord, we're thankful for um, the freedom to gather. Uh, we're thankful for our um, technology that helps those who aren't able to gather to uh, join us online. Lord, we are uh, so blessed as a people. Before we even bring any petitions to you, we want to just acknowledge and enjoy that we are swamped with blessings. You are such a good father to us. You take such good care of us. We are such a blessed people. Lord, this morning, uh, we do want to bring um, a few petitions to you, Lord. We want to pray for a people group, uh, the um, Kunbi Marathi people of India. Lord, this massive people group that you know uh, better than anyone. You know every person, every a day that's numbered, every hair on every head. You know this people, you know uh, where they're placing their trust, you know what they're worshiping, uh, you know the futility of it and their lostness, Lord, and we ask you to draw them to you. We ask you to send workers to the far corners of the field. I think the number that has been requested that we are praying for is 153 workers uh, that would go to this people group of 7.6 million. Lord, we pray that there will be people here that are too uncomfortable staying here, that can't stay and have to go and be salty and bright and aromatic in the far corners of the field among this people group. Lord, we pray that you would connect uh, the dots of even something as simple as a Lottie Moon Christmas offering uh, to provide for folks to go, uh, to uh, give them the means to provide for themselves as they go and they uh, enjoy Christ in the far corners. Lord, we just pray that you would connect these massive dots, these things that we can't orchestrate things that we can't muster, things that we almost feel embarrassed asking because uh, they're so massive, but then at the same time, we remember who we're asking, and we enjoy and celebrate how capable you are, how powerful you are, how able you are to uh, answer and um, move and go and send and do all the things that we're putting in front of you right now and to draw this people to you. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for another church in our community. We're praying for First Baptist Church in Greenville. Lord, we want to pray for Roy Youngblood and his family. Lord, I ask that you would bless Roy in the ministry, first and foremost, that he would be uh, overwhelmed with your goodness and your grace and your mercy, that he and his family would enjoy the gospel, uh, first and foremost, that you would bless his marriage, uh, 
that, Lord, that that would spill over into a ministry that he's uh, involved in at First Baptist Church in Greenville. Lord, we are entrusting First Baptist Church to you. We're asking you to do wonderful things there, to draw people to you on the north side of town, uh, to equip the saints uh, so that they will be um, salty, bright, and aromatic, uh, kingdom-expanding, ex- kingdom-attentive, uh, kingdom-useful uh, people uh, in, in our community, Lord. We pray that as we have the chance to lift them up this morning, that it would spill over into workspaces and neighborhoods where we may know brothers and sisters that gather at First Baptist Church Greenville, and that we can um, let them know that we're celebrating what God's doing there, and we're praying for Him to do great things. Um, Lord, also we want to pray for our um, brothers and sisters that are sick or are recovering or are quarantined. Lord, we want to pray also for those who are staying in because they really should. And uh, Lord, all the the uh, the issues that go along with isolation, Lord, we pray that you would use, um, that the Holy Spirit would orchestrate our efforts to connect between Sundays, uh, that we would have an intentional um, uh, a mindset and attentiveness toward one another as we're in our little pockets trying to figure out how to navigate a strange season. Lord, we pray that you would connect those pockets, that you would connect dots and connect relationships and conversations, even through uh, technology or, uh, or in person, uh, that would, would help folks as, as they navigate this strange season. Lord, we pray that during this season that we would not be a divided people despite the circumstances. And pray that you would connect a people in a way that only the Spirit can. That's a tremendous request that we're putting in front of you and thankful that you can do that. Lord, we're also praying that you would bless these next few minutes. That we would enjoy something as simple as the birthplace of Christ. Just entrusting this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand, if you would, for the reading of God's word from Micah chapter 2. Excuse me, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Lord, speak to us from these words. Lord, open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of an unbelievably graceful and merciful God. And the wonder of a birth in Bethlehem. I'm praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. I told Daniel uh, yesterday, I was talking to him briefly about the sermon. I said, it's kind of a, a wee sermon. It's, it's kind of a little small, little tidy, little uh, wee sermon. And, and I have a little struggle with that because I don't like to preach wee sermons. And Daniel said, you can have a wee sermon every now and again. So that's, uh, you'll be excited to know that it's wee, maybe not in time, but in simplicity. It really is a very simple message from one passage exclusive or primarily. We're going to look around the passage that we just read to try and make sense of it. But most of what we're going to do this morning is try and make sense of what God was doing in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? What happened there? Uh, the significance of what that has to do with us as we're navigating uh, 2020, the tail end of 2020 here in Hunt County. So let's talk Bethlehem for a little bit. Uh, we're going to sort of unpack this passage in the next few minutes, but I want to talk specifically this little village or little town of Bethlehem. Uh, it was the birthplace of um, the youngest of Jacob's sons. You may know the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Zilpah and Bilhah. 
Anybody that thinks they have a pretty crazy family just needs to read the story of Jacob and how he ended up with two wives, two concubines, and at this point, 11 sons, the 12th son being Benjamin. Pretty crazy story about Jacob, but uh, Bethlehem sort of entered the storyline where Rachel was giving birth to their youngest son, uh, a boy named Benjamin, and in giving birth to him, she did not survive. I'll just share the passage with you. It's from Genesis chapter 35. I will have you turn a few places this morning, and I'll let you know where those places are. Uh, But just to kind of give you a little window into this story, I'll just read this passage, and you can just listen. They journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephra. Uh, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephra, that is, Bethlehem. That's really the first place that Bethlehem kind of enters the story in our Bibles. Uh, uh, we could just kind of grab a few little data points about Bethlehem and just right off the bat identify that it's in some ways it's a place of sadness. It's a place where a treasured wife passed away, where a son was born but a treasured wife. You know the story of Jacob that he had a special fondness for Rachel. So we could just put right on on the top of the list there. It is a sad place of great loss, Bethlehem, where Rachel was buried. There are a couple of stories in the book of Judges, uh, obscure stories, one of them very strange. If you really want to read those, if you're just kind of curious over the course of the week, you could look those up and just uh, with a concordance look up Bethlehem and look in the book of Judges. Uh, really nothing more uh, special about Bethlehem in those couple of stories than these characters came from there. Okay, so really it's just a place to be from in those strange stories. So there's nothing uh, significant, there's nothing theologically important about that being the place where these guys came from. Just two strange stories in the book of Judges. So basically so far, we have a sad place, a place of great loss. Secondly, we have just somewhere to be from. We all need to be from somewhere. And Bethlehem was somewhere for a couple of people in the book of Judges to be from. Another story that's less obscure, if you paid attention over the course of the fall as Greg was preaching in the book of Ruth, you may be familiar with uh, the story of Ruth and uh, Naomi's husband was from Bethlehem. His name was Elimelech. And uh, after a time in Moab, Naomi and Ruth came back to Bethlehem and met a man named Boaz. If you remember that story, you remember that uh, they actually connected the two of them. Let me find passage here in Ruth. Um, Naomi returned to Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, so Bethlehem was a place where they landed. They met a man named Boaz. Later in the book of Ruth, if you recall, um, Boaz and Ruth became husband and wife. The elders of the city of Bethlehem in some ways spoke what was to come into being, God's uh, future for this couple. Uh, In chapter 4, verse 12, the elders of Bethlehem said, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Okay, the offspring, as that story unfolds, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. 
Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He's speaking of Boaz. And then eventually this son. Okay, there's has sort of a double layer there. He shall be to you a restorer of life, this son, and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave, gave him a name saying, a son's been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Okay, it's a beautiful story, a provision, a promised son. And then Obed, if you know the rest of the story, Obed gave birth to a son named Jesse. And we connect to really, I think, the most important part or the important history of Bethlehem is the story of Jesse's son. This first place I'll have you turn this morning is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'll give you a minute to turn there. I think this is the most important piece of history connected to Bethlehem. It has a beautiful irony. I want you to kind of pay attention to the story itself because in many ways Micah is leaning back into this little story. 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'll begin reading the story and as you get there you can just kind of jump in. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have prophesied or provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you will do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling and saying, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Okay, watch how, what, how this unfolds. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is one of Jesse's sons. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So it's not Eliab. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. It's not Eliab. It's not Abinadab. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Okay, these are the ones that were there available for the consecration. These are the ones on location at this event as they're passing by like a parade. No, it's not this one, not this one, not this one. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And you can almost see the look on Jesse's face. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I've got one more kid. He's out in the field with the sheep. He said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. The youngest is important. The youngest is in the field keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. There he is. David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is probably the most important piece of history connected to Bethlehem. This was certainly not the kind of man that Samuel was looking for. You know he's looking for the tall and the handsome, maybe uh, following off the cue of Saul. And, of course, it wasn't Abinadab. It wasn't all these other brothers. It was the one that's forgotten in the field. It's also even important that Jesse wasn't even thinking about this boy, David. He was the wee youngest lad forgotten in the field. An unlikely place provided an unlikely king. I want you to hear that. An unlikely place provided an unlikely king. Micah seems to be bringing that point out, especially where he says, you're too little, you, O Bethlehem, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Literally in Hebrew, that little, that too little actually means too young. You're too young to be considered like David in the field. Surely you're not a likely candidate. You're too little, too young to be considered. He's referring back to uh, a time in the um, conquest and in the settling of the land where each of the sons and their, cl- and their clans each got their uh, allotted piece of geography. He's speaking back to a passage in Joshua, and I'd like you to turn there if you would. Joshua chapter 15. I want you to look with me for something. Joshua chapter 15. I'll acquaint you with the passages you're turning there. This is the allotment for Judah. You know, we're talking about Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. We're talking about the southern kingdom. Okay, we're looking down the list here in Joshua chapter 15. Of, uh, the, the chapter begins with the geography of Joshua's territory, the boundaries, so to speak. And then he begins to identify towns, 115 of them. 115 towns beginning in... Um, Verse 21, the cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme south toward the boundary of Edom were Kabzeel, Eder, Jager, Kena, Demona, Adada. I'm not going to read all 115 of them. But what we can do is we can scan down this list. Okay, let's scan down this list and look for Bethlehem. Let's look down. Okay, we go down. Um, oh, there's one in 27, Beth Pellet. Oh, man. Bummer. It's not Bethlehem. Beth Pellet. Okay, let's look down further, see if we can find Bethlehem. Now, I don't see anything. We're going down. Um, oh, there's verse 41, Beth Dagon. Shoot. No Bethlehem either. Beth Dagon. I don't even know what that is. That's weird. But Bethlehem's not mentioned so far. We scan down the list, and we come to, I think there's another. Oh, yeah, look in verse 53, Beth Tapua. Man, where's Bethlehem? It's not even listed here. I'm being ridiculous here. I'm being facetious on purpose. Because we've got 115 of the most prominent towns mentioned in Judah. And Bethlehem is not even among them. It is so small and insignificant. It is unmentionable. It's truly unmentionable. Like the little boy left in the field that's not even considered to be the king of Israel. It's an unlikely place from which came an unlikely king. There actually is another place that's in this settlement section here in Joshua that is named Bethlehem, but it's not even in Judah. It's a different Bethlehem. It's a Bethlehem in the land of Zebulun. So if you read in Joshua chapter 19, that's not the Bethlehem that's 
prophesied from Micah. That's not the birthplace of Christ. That's a whole nother Bethlehem. The emphasis here from Micah seems to be the significant insignificance of Bethlehem. The significant insignificance of Bethlehem. Little, young, insignificant, like a forgotten lad with the sheep. Okay. Let's leave Bethlehem alone for a minute. Let's gather up the context of Micah for a minute, if we can. As I'm looking around, <coughs> excuse me, as I'm looking around the room, I think <coughs> most of us have been here. I don't see uh, folks that haven't been here the last couple of weeks. So most of you are likely familiar, <coughs> excuse me, with the story of Micah. Those that are joining us online, uh, you can uh, grab the previous two sermons, sort of get connected to the story of Micah, the context. But I would like to take just a moment, <coughs> excuse me, drinking lukewarm coffee was not a good idea. I went down the wrong shoot. The context of Micah is important at this point. Okay, we gathered up some details about Bethlehem. Just kind of leave Bethlehem where it sits. Small, insignificant, young, unimportant, unmentionable. Okay, now let's gather up the context of Micah. This is a time of affluence in the north in Israel and in the south in Judah. A time where they had not experienced this kind of affluence since since the time of Solomon. In the north and the south, what came with affluence was all manner of sin. There's neglect in the abuse of the sojourner. Okay, that's the first thing. They're unjust judges. They've been purchased. There are unfaithful preachers and prophets that are not preaching the whole message. They're only preaching the good stuff. They have no messages of condemnation, no messages calling to repentance, only the good things, only the encouraging things. Prophets became hirelings. Educated priests only taught for a price. They looked religious externally, whitewashed tombs on the outside as they filled the temple, offering lavish offerings, but their hearts were far from him. And the rich were getting rich, richer at the expense of the poor. It was a terrible time in the life of the, in, in the in the history of Israel and in the history of Judah. Micah chapter one has a nice little summary of what this time was like in verse nine, speaking of Israel in the north, her wound is incurable. Micah's speaking to what's going on in the north in Israel. says, her wound is incurable. The Assyrians are going to invade Israel in the north. And they're going to take Samaria. And all of Israel in the north is, is going to become a province of Assyria. Her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Micah is in the south, a stone's throw from Jerusalem. And he says, this judgment has now come to Judah. We're watching it unfold in the north in 722 B.C. with the destruction and the defeat of Samaria. And we're watching it knock at the door of Jerusalem in the south. A terrible time of judgment. There are four really important nows that I want to show you in Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 beginning in verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Micah is speaking to Judah at this point, and he's talking about the judgment that they're facing. 
And these four terrible nows bring us to this reality. They're crying like a woman in labor before pre-epidural. There was no such thing as epidurals. So this is a very graphic reminder, a graphic image of a woman in the travail of childbirth. Writhe and groan, verse 10, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now, here's the second now, now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. He's speaking to the future exile to Babylon about 150 years later. He's speaking forward to exile to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Here the third now. Now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. This is a gang of nations that are surrounding Israel and Judah and they are ready to do their bidding. And jump down to verse 5. Here's the fourth now. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is the most graphic of the four. The other are speaking to sort of these generalities and speaking forward to Babylon. This one here in verse 5, verse 1, or chapter 5, verse 1, is speaking of a present reality in Judah. Is speaking of the surrounding army around Jerusalem of 200,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers. The Assyrians, 200,000. I was trying to get a sense of what 200,000 people would feel like. Kyle Field, if you've ever been to Kyle Field on a, on a game weekend at, in College Station, holds 102,000 people. Did you know that? 102? That's unfathomable. Explains why it takes so long to get in and out of a game. 102,000 people times two surrounding little old bitty Jerusalem. Times two, surrounding little old bitty Jerusalem. And imagine that you're living there in Jerusalem, you're looking over the wall, and you see 200,000 of the Assyrian army surrounding your city. We're talking about very real, very present, very dark, very graphic judgment in eyeshot. Not only soldiers, but we're talking about trained soldiers. We're talking about experienced soldiers with superior numbers, superior weapons, superior tactics. Micah is speaking to a Judah that is doomed. Micah is speaking to a a Judah that is facing serious judgment. This is an immediate reality. We're not talking about something imaginary. 200 thousand people. That's three times AT&T Stadium. That's three times the Superdome in New Orleans surrounding little old bitty Jerusalem. And they are facing dark judgment at God's hand. The terrible events unfolding in Judah and then there are more terrible events unfolding in the future with Babylon. It is dark And it appears unbelievably hopeless. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Micah's good news as they're surrounded by 200,000 of the Assyrian soldiers is there shall come forth from you, Bethlehem, a ruler from ancient of days. Just three little 
things to draw out of this simple passage and simple sermon. But I think they're potent. The first of those is, I think, Micah's main point is that God has a habit of making surprising choices. God has a habit of surprising choices. The story of David being called and this forgotten boy in the field is a beautiful picture into the kind of God that we have and the kind of calling that he does. The nation of Israel was, was reminded of this in the book of Deuteronomy. You can just listen to this passage or you can turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I think there's a beautiful irony to considering the type of choices that our God makes. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, Israel. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. It's like God goes out of his way to make surprising choices. Are these all of your sons, Jesse? Uh, Yeah. Oh, Oh, wait a minute. I've got a young one, the smallest one, the one I forgot about out in the field. Yeah, that's the one God's choosing. Israel, you're pretty impressive people. I mean, you're the best and the brightest. You're the biggest in the number. No, actually, you're the smallest in number. There is absolutely nothing impressive at all about you, Israel. I think there's something to God's people understanding God's surprising choice. Paul made that point with the Corinthians. Man, the Corinthian church was a mess. And Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human human being might boast in the presence of God. God has a habit of surprising choices. And in that habit of surprising choices, he picks the least likely. He picks the least likely to succeed. He picks the obscure. He picks the marginalized. He picks the lame. He picks the leper. He picks the blind. He picks the deaf. He picks the needy. He picks the ones who are realizing they are sick and in need of a Savior. Man, right off the bat, we should enjoy that our Lord, as he was born in Bethlehem, the point that Micah is making above all is the surprise and the shock of Bethlehem of all places for this kind of king and this kind of ruler to come. It is a surprising surprising choice and it should condition the people of God to be a surprised humble people a surprised humble people he chooses the foolish things that confound the wise man a surprising choice the second thing that I think comes out of this that I really enjoy is contrast chapter 5 verse 1 with chapter 2 or chapter 5 verse 2 
I'd like to just read these two verses together because I really want to bring this out. I think this may be, to me, the, one of the most dear parts of this simple little sermon. Chapter 5, verse 1 is that, fir, is that fourth now, that fourth now of terrible judgment. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Siege of 200,000 people is surrounding Jerusalem. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. Micah's remedy for a siege of 200,000 Assyrians was the birth of a ruler in Bethlehem 700 years later. The birth of a ruler in Bethlehem 700 years later. Greg and I have had a conversation somewhat recently. I, haven't, I didn't tell Greg that I was going to bring this up this morning, but, uh, and I might be uh, broaching something that Greg will probably spend more time on later at some point. Of course, I'm committing him at this point. He'll have to. We had a conversation the other day, and I want to really condition this because I'm going to be very careful with it. The gospel is not the answer to everything. Okay, that was sort of the, the spirit of the conversation. Gospel is not the answer to everything. Uh, just kind of let me condition this for you a little bit. I'm going to imagine that you walk up with a broken arm and somebody says to you, man, you really need the gospel. And you're like, bro, I, I mean, I'm not against the gospel at all, and I appreciate the value of the gospel, but I need something. Can you, I mean, my arm is broken. Can you take me to the ER? I need my arm to be set. I need, might need a pen. I might need some surgery, something. Your marriage is in a... In, 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 uh, shambles, and someone says to you, man, you know what you really need is you need the gospel. You're like, well, I mean, I, I mean, I appreciate that. I love the gospel. I love Jesus, but it's not really helping me figure out why my wife and I are at odds. I mean, is there something? It, you understand how this, the answer of the gospel in every circumstance is not really very helpful. There are micro solutions to all kinds of problems, and the micro solution to a broken arm Okay? is to get it set, to have a doctor look at it, take an x-ray and figure out what needs to be fixed there. The micro solution to marital problems might be marital counseling. Okay, the micro solution to a siege of 200,000 people surrounding Jerusalem, the micro solution was what some people have called like the bubonic plague. They don't know what in the world wiped out nearly 200,000 soldiers overnight. Something wiped them out. I'm going to believe what the Bible says is the angel of the Lord overnight. The angel of the Lord took the army of Assyria. Okay? That's the micro solution. But that's not Micah's solution. The solution that Micah presents is the macro solution. Okay, in a limited sense, the micro solution to a broken arm is to have your arm set. But the macro solution is going to be the Lord himself. And what was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. What was promised from Micah 700 years later. This ruler that would be born in Bethlehem. Actually is the one who will make the crooked straight. See in this ruler. In this ruler that was promised to them. In the ruler that we enjoy every single advent. He is the macro answer to every single problem. There are micro solutions. And saying, you need the gospel is not, not helpful in every circumstance. But when we pan out, we realize, that, oh man, he really actually does make all things straight. He does make the crooked straight. He makes the valleys 
level. He fills the valleys and makes the rough plain. I'll share a little passage with you just to consider what I'm, where I'm going with this in Luke chapter 3. It's a nice little summary of this. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low in this promised Christ, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So in some ways, saying in every circumstance you need the gospel, that's not helpful. But we, the room full of people, gospel lovers and Christ lovers, can appreciate that it absolutely is the macro solution. It's Micah's solution to siege around Jerusalem. It is the macro solution for a little boy that's numbering his days right now, an 11, 12-year-old. For a family who's numbering their days with this 12-year-old named Trevor. The micro solution, let's go get some radiation and squeeze out a few more days. The macro solution and the very thing that Trevor is hoping in, the very thing that his family is hoping in, is that Trevor's going to be with Jesus. And his family's going to join him before Trevor even knows it. Time's going to pass like that when Trevor's with the Lord. And before he knows it, we'll all be with him. He is the macro solution to the problem of cancer. He is the macro solution to job problems, money problems, marriage problems, health problems. He is the macro solution. He's Micah's remedy for siege. He's good news for siege that a king will be born in Bethlehem 700 years later. It's good news for exile when they go into Babylon. That a king will be born in Bethlehem some 580 years later. He's good news when they face faithless leadership that's been purchased For a ruler will be born in Bethlehem that won't be faithless, that won't fail them. He's good news for cancer. There will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more death, no more crying in what this king accomplishes in the end. He's good news for job problems, good news for marriage problems, good news for relationship problems. And there are always micro-solutions, but he is the absolute macro answer. He is absolutely the answer to a fallen world and all the loss, all the hardship, all the struggle, all the difficulty that we face. He's Micah's solution to siege and he's our solution to every single thing ultimately. He's the macro Solution: A ruler from ancient of days, born in little old, young, insignificant Bethlehem. The last thing that I think that comes out of this beautiful picture of the birth in Bethlehem is the great reversal of the passage. In verse 1, there's this terrible news. Siege. 
In the verses before that, there's the hint at future exile into Babylon. But then there's these sweet words, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. There's some dear uh, passages in my Bible, in our Bibles, that I think you might be able to think about. One that comes to mind is in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just share this passage with you, maybe kind of connect with the context a little bit so you can appreciate where I'm going with this, but you, O Bethlehem. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were surrounded by 200,000 of Samaria's army, Assyrians' army, excuse me. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We deserve to be surrounded by Assyrians' army. We deserved our lot of judgment. This window into the story of Israel and the story of Judah is just a window into the human problem. We are all by nature children of wrath. And then these two dear words, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This but God is such a surprising redirect. This but you, O Bethlehem, is such a surprising redirect. Micah could fairly be a collection of doom oracles. Period. But the fact that it's coupled with deliverance oracles says a lot about the kind of God that we follow, the kind of God that we serve, the kind of God that we worship. He is a graceful and merciful and relentlessly good God. But God made us alive together with Christ. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. The dear reversals in our Bibles, there's so many. You look back to the Story of Noah, waters covering the face of the earth. And then it says, but God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you are so surprising in what you do and where you do it and who you do it with. God, we enjoy the irony of all of it right now. We marvel together that you've opened the eyes of our hearts to see the wonder of what you've accomplished for us in Christ, that you've drawn us to be part of this story. God, we marvel together that you made a way out for Israel and Judah in this promised ruler and king. And Lord, we enjoy that his birth was in a surprising, forgotten, unmentionable place like Bethlehem. It's so fitting. Lord, I pray that it conditions us to hope for wonderful and great things right here in unmentionable, forgetful, unimportant Greenville. Lord, I pray in this season 
of Advent this year in these ordinary homes on ordinary streets populated by sons and daughters of the High King of Heaven that we'll enjoy the surprising God that we serve. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.